Welcome to the Theology Podcast, and this is C.R. Wiley, and I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. And I'm joined by my friends, as I am each week, and we have a special guest today, and we'll let her introduce herself in a moment. But I'll hand it over to my right for Tom. Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist and adjunct professor of both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I'm Elizabeth Sunshine, Glenn's daughter, uh, also a doctoral student at the University of Notre Dame studying Christianity and Judaism in antiquity. All right. Well, we're going to get into a little antiquity here. We're going to be talking today about Plato a bit, but uh, through a, uh, a, uh, an approach that might uh, be a surprise to some of our listeners. So I'd like to talk about today, this is my day, this is my day to uh, introduce the subject of the day, and uh, I want to talk about... Oh, Yes. Kickstarter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thanks, FLN. Glenn. Right, <laughs> yeah. Glenn just waved me down to remind me of the fact that I mentioned I wanted to have a couple of announcements before I even began. <laughs> so the, one of the announcements is that our Kickstarter campaign is wrapped up, and it was a success. We're waiting for the funds to be distributed, uh, but once those funds are distributed, we're going to be purchasing some equipment. And uh, hopefully that is going to make the show even easier to listen to. And then the other thing is that we've been uh, made a part of the uh, FLN network. FL, I'm sorry, FLF network, and that stands for for Fight Laugh Feast. Fight and Laugh Feast Network, and our good friends at Cross Politic uh, are behind that. And uh, so we're going to become officially a part of that network of podcasts beginning in June. So we're excited about that because they've got a much larger distribution uh, channel than we have, and uh, hopefully that'll uh, have a positive effect on our listenership, I guess is what you would call it. Thanks, Glenn. So there we go. But back to the subject at hand, I'd like to talk today about C.S. Lewis and Plato. And uh, I, I was thinking a little bit about how, uh, you know, to title the talk or the title our subject today. Uh, and my thought was, well, you know, we could call it C.S. Lewis Platonist, and that's a good thing. <laughs> so let me let me begin with my with my my uh, sort of my uh, my argument or my uh, my way into it through his fiction. At the end of the last battle, uh, Lewis gives us a, a picture of the eschaton. He, he's describing for us the end of the world, and it's been it's it's through the perspective of the Pevensey kids as they as they have died, which is a good thing in this story, and now they find themselves in this very uh, odd place where everything seems familiar and yet not familiar. And at that point in the story, let me just jump to it. I'm going to read a little bit from the story. We uh, have a, the, the narrator, who is, of course, Lewis, uh, describing for us what's going on. And uh, But what we've got is uh, uh, a conversation in which Peter and Lucy and Edmund and so forth are all... Uh, uh, it, it's, it's going on. The conversation is being conducted. And uh, they're, they're making observations about, about their surroundings. And here's, here's how uh, it begins. In this, it's on page 139 of this particular edition of 
the, uh, the, the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia is The Last Battle, and this is from Further Up and Further In. <laughs> and it says, um, if you ask me, said Edmund, it's like some, somewhere in, Nar uh, in the Narnian world. Look at those mountains ahead and the big uh, ice mountains beyond them. Surely they're rather like the mountains we used to see from Narnia, the ones up westward beyond the waterfall. Yes, so they are, said Peter, only these are bigger. I don't think those ones are so very like anything in Narnia, said Lucy, but look here. She pointed southward to their left, and everyone stopped and turned to look. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, why they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with its forked head, and there's the pass into Arkenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them, mm -hmm. and they look further away than I remember, mm -hmm. and they're more, more, oh, I don't know, more like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farsight the eel spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled round, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried. We have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I have seen it all. Edismoor, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Care Paravel still shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can that be, said Peter? For Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia. And here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you should never see, go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that is not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered all its dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different. It is as different as a real thing is from a shadow or, from, uh, or as waking life is from a dream. His voice stirred everyone like a trumpet as he spoke these words. But when he added under his breath, it's all in Plato, all in Plato, bless me. What do they teach them in these schools? Well, there you go. <laughs> now, if that were the only thing in Lewis that uh, reflected a platonic way of thinking, then we might just say he was just using that as a device, literary device, to kind of get across a, a mood or, 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 or a kind of sense that uh, helped to further the purpose of his story. But it's not. There's a lot more in Lewis that reminds us of Plato. I'm thinking, for example, of The Great Divorce, when in The Great Divorce, Lewis, who in the beginning of the story, finds himself in what we, I suppose, could think of as a kind of 
purgatory of us in, in one sense, or just maybe hell before it gets really bad. <laughs> we see him get on a bus, and he goes to heaven, and when he arrives in heaven, he has the exact same experience as described here at the end of the last battle, where he sees the, the spirits of that place, that heavenly place, but they're dense, they're real, they're fully embodied, whereas his own body has become a wispy and insubstantial thing, so wispy and insubstantial that the, that the grass hurts his feet, like mm-hmm. razor blades that, that, that poke up through the soles of his shoes. It's a, it's a place that's more real. So when we tend to think about spiritual things, we think, kind of think of them as ghostly and mm-hmm. as un- insubstantial. But what Lewis is showing us is that in a platonic way of thinking, it's the unseen things that are genuinely real. And it's the, f- the world that we live in that's the shadow land, which, by the way, is the name of a movie, <laughs> which should al- also bring to mind, you know... One uh, worth seeing for that matter. <laughs> right. You know, and I could go on and on about this, but I, I, I'll let you guys jump in, see what you do. What do you think about this idea? I think it's it's clear that Lewis was very heavily influenced by Platonic thought, and this isn't a surprise. As someone who knows medieval literature inside out, um, he's going to have been exposed to this over and over again because a significant percentage of the Christian tradition is really anchored in, in um, philosophically in Platonic thought. Right. You got Boethius. Yep. You've got Augustine. And I think all the patristics are uh, yeah, immersed in it. Yeah. Immersed in it. So he, he was, in a sense, retrieving classical Christian ontology. It's a big word. And right. metaphysics. He was he was he was saying the best frame for articulating the biblical message is the one the church worked through from the earliest days up into right. sort of really up into modernity, where you 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 had breaks from. That vision, even with Aquinas, you had the integration of Aristotelian thought with Platonic thought, but it was not an abandonment. Right. It was really some of the figures later, and that was Luther's reaction to those later figures that sort of lionized Aristotelianism. But in, a, in an interesting way, Luther was very indebted to that Platonic line as well. So, so the whole church, especially the Protestant and the Reformation, are very indebted to a return in many ways to Christian Platonism because of their return to Augustine in particular. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard the Reformation referred to as the, as the Augustinian revolt. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, the Augustinians had been displaced, yeah. and uh, it was the, it was the you know, they were striking back, you know, kind of the empire striking back, <laughs> right. the kingdom striking back. Right. And, and I think you're, you're seeing, I know, from the, the, the angle of modern theology um, and the... the you're, you're seeing the, these kind of two breaks happening. You're seeing sort of a, a, a Augustinian naturalism, as some have called it, um, develop where it becomes it becomes really a materialized interpretation of Christianity with your social justice and your you know this worldly liberation is the final end of things, human flourishing, sort of a secular interpretation of the gospel or reinterpretation. And then you have this other side, which you know in many ways grew. It grew in conversation with a lot of the things happening in, in the, the academic theological world, but the Nouvelle theology, I think in particular from in the Catholic tradition, was a return to the patristics to rethink what did Christianity say as it worked away from the sort of philosophies that it entered into in Hellenism to actually articulate a proper Christian vision in that context. And so they found that a lot of the... the uh, 
the Christians were naturally attracted to Platonic thought because it didn't see nature and matter as final or first. It saw them as secondary and derivative. And so therefore, if you're going to understand creation, the creature, and everything properly, you had to understand it from its derivative role and dependency on, on the creator and the transcendent. And so Plato's thought lent itself. They purged the parts that they didn't see were, right. were conti you know, right. continuous with it, but they, they kind of developed that thinking and, and repatterned it as it conformed to Christian thought. Yeah, and interestingly enough, if you go to the 12th century, there's a worldview that emerges that I think it was uh, Dawson referred to it as Platonic humanism. Mm -hmm. And the idea here is that, in, in, you know, to bottom line it, the world was created by God, the world came from God, therefore studying the world can lead you back to God. Mm -hmm. um, and thus you get in the 12th century the, uh, a burgeoning of... Uh, things like a change in artistic representation so that it becomes far more naturalistic mm -hmm. um, starting in the 12th century, well before the Renaissance. Right, right. You also see people like uh, uh, Bacon and the rather unfortunately named Grosstest. Um, <laughs> the name can translate to fathead. Um, the, they, um, they, they're going to be arguing, Bacon especially is going to be arguing that you know you need to do direct observations of nature. If you're actually going to look at nature to understand the mind of God. You have to look at nature. You can't just reason about it. Right. Um, direct first-hand observation, then mathematizing it. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, Bacon is also then going to make a similar argument with respect to scripture and argue that you need to read it and study it in the original languages. Yeah. Direct observation. Yeah, speaking of, uh, of course, of uh, mathematics, mm -hmm. uh, in my my limited experience, but in the experience of the, of, the, of the people I'm thinking about, the academic mathematicians that I know about, most of them, at least in my personal circle, are all Platonists. Yes. And it's because they, they believe that, that the numbers actually refer to something real. This is not some just a little mental game that we're playing when we do, when we do math. And I think you could see it. You talk about observation. You can see it up, you know, on the level level of surface observation. I'm sitting in a place in which I see squares, I see triangle circles, I see basic forms which do not shift shape all that much. What, what, what did, yeah, what did, what did Plato have <laughs> over the door of the academy? If you can't, uh, if you can't do ge uh, geometry, just go home. Go home. That. <laughs> and a lot of the, the um, um, you know, uh, theologians would, were captivated by this, and they did a lot. They did Plato around with mathematics, geometry, and, and the mind of God. Right. So they were working through this kind of, um, the way in which matter takes form. And see, one of the things that gets you know ripped out of of the scientific you know vision as it moves towards scientism right. and naturalism is this, this sort of formal and final causality, the fact that things things uh, things are caused to take shape and that shape is orienting them towards certain proper ends. But this is something that the ancient philosophical world it was commonplace. Yeah, it was, it was second nature to them. And, and Christianity did not have it, you know, it, again, it was going to repattern them and reorient them in light of the full picture that Christ sheds on things and conform it to knowledge of Christ. But it found most of those things in conformity with it, not as something that you get rid of for, for a, a kind of a, a flat this-worldliness. 
Yeah, and interestingly enough, though, when you trace this out, like I said, with Platonic humanism is a great starting point. Yeah. It doesn't deny the reality of this world. That's right. And in fact, it yeah. leads directly to empiricism, to empirical observations of the world, because yeah. that is the only way you can get access to the mind of God who created it. That's right. So you, you sometimes get this sense from, from evangelicals that Platonism discounts this world and so on, that it... it, it creates it, a dualism. Yeah, yeah, it creates a dualism when... In actuality, the Christian Platonism of the Middle Ages, certainly, which Lewis was steeped in, was anything but that kind of dualism. In fact, it was exactly uh, kind of, you know, it was working in the reverse. It was saying that the reason why this world has significance is because it's tethered to an unseen world that was more real than the world that we see around us. That doesn't mean that the world we see around us is is insignificant or unimportant. It's actually infused with importance because of that connection. If there is no connection to something bigger than this world, then all you're left with is facts, not meaning. That's it. That's right. And and we see once once nature gets severed from its participation in, in, you know, the gift of life from God, and therefore it, it's it, having its transcendent interpretation, giving it its central meaning. It does become social construct and play because it doesn't have any reference point other than whether human subject or whim or want. But one of the interesting things that Augustine brings into this, and I think this is something Lewis really held. You see it sometimes in, when he talks about um, the media, the, the way in which creation and objects in creation can mediate. Mm-hmm. The goodness, the truth, beauty of God, um, the love of God, the attributes of God, which it's meant to do, yet it can become so captivating, because, especially because of our fall, that we actually fall in love with the creaturely object rather than the, 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 you know, the giver of the gift. And so that what happens is is our, our loves get off-centered, but we, we run with sometimes the creaturely the creaturely form that, that that divine truth, beauty, or goodness takes. And so we're become so compa- attracted to the material object that we, we kind of don't see that it's serving as a sign to something fuller. And so he used to always use this, uh, Lewis used this language, came through it, but it was not the thing. And so what happens when we, in our fallenness and our idolatry, was we make an idol of the thing that it comes through rather than pushing through and seeing that thing in, a, in its fuller empirical reality from the transcendent light that gives it its meaning and sense. Yeah, I, I, I tend to uh, see two errors, you know, that many uh, evangelicals uh, commit when they think about philosophy generally, but Plato specifically. One is, is that we don't, we, we, we uh, if we infuse the, the material world with meaning, then we'll be tempted to idolatry. Yeah, which, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of a weird thing. <laughs> but then, but then there's there's the other side of it, which is uh, almost the other extreme. You know, Plato, because he's talking about you know an, another realm which is more real than this realm, creates a kind of dualism that def- that drains this world of meaning. Yeah. And you know, you get this with certain people who are, you know are coming out of the you know the world of pre- the pre- Suppositionalists, and, and you know, yeah. we talked about Schaefer, um, Rushduni, these, these people. Anything that, uh, anytime you, you bring up Plato, immediately you're accused of Gnosticism, you know, <laughs> which, you know, is kind of crazy. But 
but you know, one of, in the, the, just the, sure. just a quick note on that. The interesting thing about it is that if you don't have a proper platonic vision of this world embedded in a larger world that gives this world meaning, then all that you are left with is either nihilism or Gnosticism. Right. Yeah, right. Those are your only choices. Right. So the interesting thing is that by conflating Platonism with Gnosticism, they completely miss the point, yeah. and they drain the world of meaning. Yeah. You know, one of the things I tell these guys, a lot of them are reformed, is I said, all I want you to do is read what Calvin read. <laughs> if you just read what That's he a good read, place to start. <laughs> you discover uh, that Calvin actually read a lot of Plato, and he uh, cites Plato a lot. In fact, I've got a little book here. This is a marvelous book by a fellow named Charles Barty. It's uh, Calvin and Classical Philosophy. I think this should be mandatory reading for everyone who calls himself. We'll be with the Institute. <laughs> that's, right. That's, right. that's right. But in this, uh, you know, you've got a, 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 a full, it's not a long book, but it's a, it's a thorough book in the sense that, you know, he's referring to uh, basically Calvin the humanist. Yeah. And Calvin's approach to the the classical world and, and philosophy in particular, and as you can, and as you would suspect, you know, there are some good guys and some bad guys. You know, the bad guys are Aristotle and the Epicureans, and the good guys are Plato and the Stoics. <laughs> Those are the good. Guys. And he did like the Stoics. That's yeah, right. and, and, he, and he's and he's he's getting at yeah. you know Plato through Cicero. He's yep. getting at Plato through Augustine. He's getting at Plato Clement, through Clement. Was, was, yeah. Clement was another. I think he was a big fan of. Like, I may be wrong on that. But he and he was actually reading Plato himself, and he when it, it's very rare that he has anything negative to say about Plato. Most of the time, he praises him. He says, "Isn't it amazing that this pagan got it right?" Yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of the tone yeah. of it. And he, anyway, and, he, and it's very similar to what a lot of the patristic we we talk about the early patristic thinkers thought. They thought literally Moses had somehow come right, right. to Plato right. and educated him because there's no way he could have understood sort of the oneness of God and, the, and this right. kind of transcendence and the way in which um, um, creaturely reality wasn't final but actually had its its, its true significance in. It's it's being suspended in, in the transcendent, um, and again they knew there were dangers and in, in some of some of their reaction to those. I mean, I think you think of, of some of the debate early Christological debates in the church. They were working through some of the lingering. Um, Parts of Platonic um, philosophy that didn't quite have the tools and, and uh, intellectual resources to understand um, the full deity of Christ in relation to the Father, for example. But they had to work through that, and they worked through it largely in conversation with the tools that came out of that philosophical world. I got to I got to use this quotation here. This is this is Parti, and this is uh, again from his book uh, Calvinist and uh, Classical Philosophy. This is from Calvin on Plato and. Stoics. And uh, this is Parti and his commentary. Uh, and he quotes one of your guys. <laughs> Undoubtedly, Calvin was influenced by Plato, not only directly, but through Cicero, the early fathers, Augustine, and the Christian humanists, as various writers have uh, sought to demonstrate. To the extent that all philosophy is a footnote to Plato, or all men are, and all men are either Platonists or Aristotelians, then Calvin was a Platonist. It is likely correct, as Bart remarks, yeah. quote, from a philosophical point of view, Luther and Calvin were equally unmistakable Platonists. Yeah. Luther, more
more of a Neoplatonist, Calvin a classical Platonist. Heads are exploding right yeah. now as people are listening to our podcast. Well, and I, I don't know where if that quote uh, Abart comes. I, I, my hunch is it came out of his lectures on Calvin because I remember a similar quote when he he actually went and in the 1920s work he went back to John Calvin's thinking and um, he he wanted to to read it carefully and do a whole he, he gave a whole lecture cycle on it and in in uh, I think it's in the introduction of it that there was a very similar quote. Well, this is from Dogmatics. Okay. Dogmatics. So he, he carried he carried that note over into the, into the larger project, uh, but I, I would say in many ways, um, in his own work, he, he kind of goes in that way too. I mean, sometimes he, he I think he's less consistent in balancing Plato the, the, the Platonic tools with with Christian interpretation, but nevertheless, I think he understood that, that they were inseparable. And this is just one of a, of dozens of quotations that I could have uh, used to make the point. So anyway, one of the things that intrigues me is something that that you had mentioned when we were first talking about uh, this as a topic, and that's the idea that this metaphysical approach, you didn't put it this way, but it almost enables Lewis to write what he writes. Yes. That without this, Mm -hmm. without the sense of a deeper meaning in this world that is going to be consummated in the next then Lewis is impossible. The, the, you don't get Narnia. You don't get the space trilogy. You don't get his fiction. You don't, you don't get a lot of his other thought. And that's the thing that's missing from a lot of modern Christian fantasy writers. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're all, all the other guys are trying to do Paul Bunyan. Pilgrim's, Pro- Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan. John Bunyan. Yeah, that's right. Paul Bunyan, Paul Bunyan is that's something right. else. That's right. I like Paul Bunyan. That's right. and then, but then, this is a very fascinating point. Yeah, yeah. Paul Bunyan is actually. <laughs> I like his big blue ox. I think kids need to read that more to these days. Um, but one, a very interesting point because one would see this sort of hyper allegory as right. deeply, you know, in, in the dualisms that come out of certain kind of wrong emphases on Plato. Um, but on the other hand, what you have is, is differing applications of Plato um, going on there. So you have this highly allegorical and symbolic side. Um, but then you have the sacramental side um, on, that I think Lewis is capturing. But essentially, these are sort of more sci-fi. I think that's very tied to something, Glenn, you just mentioned. It's the eschatological emphasis, the, the, the end pressing through. And I think this is the way in which most Christians don't get what early Christians were up to in their employment of it. It was not about doing this, this, this you know, a Christian version of Plato. It was actually utilizing those tools because they helped us express the eschatological penetration of the fullest sense of the real into the creation, the resurrection life. And this is why orthodoxy won't let it go, right? Because it is the way in which when you start to talk of the eighth day, the Christian life is carried out in the, you know, the eighth day, right. the, the day of resurrection. The, the only resources we have to articulate that biblical material, and you already see the biblical writers drawing off of that world, you know, it, the, the and, language is... And if you have an eye for it, I mean, yeah. my, my education, my background, you know, I, I taught classical philosophy, I, I've studied it, you know, since my early days in college. Yeah, and when you have an when you have an eye for it, you see it all through the, the New Testament. Yeah. So let me give you an example of what yeah. we're getting at. This is now the uh, this is a passage that Plato would have said Amen to, <laughs> and this is from Second uh, Corinthians chapter four, beginning at verse sixteen. So we do not lose heart, though our outward self is wasting away. 
our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's a very, you know, sort of sympatico, <laughs> you know, with a, with a platonic approach to things. Anyway. You know, the, the, similarly, uh, Augustine at one point, when he's commenting on the Gospel of John, he says, you know, it says, in the beginning was the word. As a Neoplatonist, I knew this. It yeah. wasn't his word exactly, but he says, yeah. I knew this. Yeah. The word was with God, and the word was God. I knew that. Right. He was in the beginning with God. I knew that. All things were made through him. I knew that. Yeah. Apart from him, nothing that was made that was made. Yeah. In him was life, and the life was life men. I knew all this. Yeah. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. I knew that. Yeah. But then it says the word became flesh. Yeah, that I didn't know. That's yeah, something new. That is genuine. Yeah. That is you know, new. So, so what you're seeing, I mean, even in Augustine, you, you know, you're saying Neoplatonism has a good chunk of the gospel, but they don't have that. That's right. That's right. And th that is the way that uh, I think Pelican wrote a similar work on the way in which the, the, the patristic thinkers took the natural theology of the philo Hellenic philosophers and converted it. Mm -hmm. And they actually, see, we, we often get it wrong, often in the in reform world, we almost act like everything that isn't specifically in the redemptive side belongs to fallen creation and the devil. That's right. That's <laughs> it's right. actually the other way around. It never belonged to the devil nor fallen creation. It always belonged to the creator and to be redeemed. So this continuity between what light God held in place as preparatory for a people in the world to be readied for the gospel so that you could take something that came through the particular story um, uh, that through the Hebrew people and the preparation of a body and yet its movement out of that particular people into the utmost parts of the world to which every tribe and nation is included, their stories. It wasn't go in and become a, a, a iconoclastic and eliminate everything there. No, creation spoke. It, it held these things in place. Yes, they need to be conformed. They need to weaned off their idols and purified. Sure. That doesn't mean God didn't hold in place Truth, beauty, and goodness. That well, that's readying it. That's that's Gregory the Great in his letter to I believe it was Augustine of Canterbury, basically saying, "Don't try to eliminate their culture and make it like ours. Look at their culture and reinterpret it yeah. for them so that they can see the gospel through it." Yeah. It's what missiologists today call contextualization. Yeah, right. you know, without natural theology without general revelation without those things yeah common grace you can't do any of that that's right you all you're banking on then is just fiat miracle <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really right, right. yeah well you know elizabeth you've been kind of three old guys talking a lot you know i can tell you're ready to jump in yeah i i was just thinking about how um the the, fact, the way this is so uh, counterintuitive to many Christians today, there's sort of, uh, you know, I'll often hear, um, I, I majored in philosophy as an undergrad, and a lot of times if someone asks and I tell them that, they'll, they'll think, oh, th that's so abstract, it's so detached from real life, yes, and real right. life meaning this table here, and yeah. just that <laughs> thing about what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal, yeah, right. draw, draws to mind, um, yeah, that if, if you're actually looking at it platonic 
technically there then what's what's real is the uh, the the things that we that we can't see the more what what we would be inclined to dismiss as abstract. That's right. Right. Yes. Yeah. We live by faith, not by sight. There's a sense of unseen. Yeah. The things that are unseen. But we. But this gets us to this this uh, kind of mystical and sacramental dimension. It's through the things that we see. And this is the thing that I think a lot of people are critics of Plato miss. Yeah. So how do we know what a form is? Yeah. Well, we we uh, encounter it through its particularization. You know, as we encounter tables, we understand what a table is and sort of what constitutes a table in its in its uh, formal sense. Uh, we can recognize, okay, that's a table, that's a table, that's a table, because they have these things in common, and we kind of get at. This is kind of a, of course, a kind of Aristotelian approach, but but you kind of get at. But I think that's that's the thing like that that Aquinas was touching on is that you know yeah we're first impressed by that table is the first thing that kind of experience, but then we start to ponder that it is. <laughs> yeah, and that's wonder, wonder, and so all of that you're back right at that place that this isn't the most immediate thing. It's it's this being right. that is the most immediate thing, and then being becomes a larger topic than just the particular being that it is, and it brings it right back up the universals. Well, it brings it back. And up if you're inclined to forget that and yeah. to um, and to think that we're yeah. going to get to the universals apart from the particular, then we go. If you're a Christian Platonist, you go back to and the Word became flesh, flesh and dwelt right. among us. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's this, right. this, in a roundabout way, or tangentially, gets us to the to the to the subject of evil. You know, in the, the Augustinian approach. Is that evil is a is a lack or a whole privation, being, yeah. privation yeah. Of, of being, and that and that this has a kind of interesting kind of correspondence to our cosmology because as we think about you know what is real in the Neoplatonic approach the understanding is that the further away you get from being that's right you know the less uh, real something is yeah. and that and there's actually what, what prompted this whole thought or this idea for this talk was I'm reading my way through out of the silent planet. I'm in another group. We don't record it. <laughs> but we're reading that we're reading the, uh, the out, of, out of the silent planet together. And uh, as you recall in that story, a fellow named Ransom, who's a philologist who many people believe is inspired by Tolkien, is abducted by a scientist, a physicist named Weston and a, uh, an entrepreneurial sort named Divine who <laughs> wants to uh, use whatever can be used in order to get, get more money. Uh, so he's, he's that sort of guy. And uh, so he's abducted and taken to Mars in a spaceship. And as they're, as they're journeying through space, Lewis is, is describing the experience of Ransom in a way in which uh, sort of the older cosmology is, is supplanting the newer cosmology. So like when we think of space, what we think of is vacuity, obviously, <laughs> emptiness. Uh, we think of coldness, darkness, death. We think of these things. We think of non-being. Yeah. But what happens to Ransom as, he just, as, as he's passing through space is he's having an entirely different experience from the one he anticipated. Yeah. He's, he thinks of it more as kind of a, uh, a, uh, a womb of worlds. As mm. At one point he describes mm. space as this light-filled place that the that gives birth to the worlds that uh, that living creatures are are uh, you know enjoying and living on, but but he, he goes further, and this is at the very end of uh, 
this uh, journey, and they're actually descending to, uh, you know, taking going to land on Mars. And the experience of, of coming to land on Mars is very uh, uh, disconcerting, and uh, actually makes them makes the, the passengers physically ill <laughs> on the spaceship. So this creates an impression on Ransom that kind of gets us to the Augustinian understanding of, of privation. Let me, let me just, I'll read it to you, and I think you'll, you'll all want to jump in on it. <laughs> so here, here it is. And this is from chapter, chapter 6, very end of Out of the Silent Planet. This is Ransom thinking. He wondered how he could have thought of planets, even of the Earth, as islands of life and reality floating in a deadly void. Now, with a certainty which never after deserted him, he saw the planets, the Earths, as he called them in his thought, as mere holes or gaps in the living heaven, excluded and rejected wastes of heavy matter and murky air, formed not by addition to, but subtraction from the surrounding brightness and yet, he thought, beyond the solar system, the brightness ends. Is that the real world, the real death? Unless, he groped for the idea, unless visible light is also a hole or a gap, a mere diminution of something else, something that is to bright, unchanging heaven as heaven is to dark, heavy earths. Now that's classic, yeah. you know, Ptolemaic yeah. cosmology, right yeah. there. Yeah. But anyway, you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know that he puts in a very strong literary way the kind of complicated theme of what happens when you try to talk about the positivity and beauty of goodness. And yet, what ha how, how you try to talk about privation in relationship to that. And I think something like that actually communicates it better than, than like we say sometimes just talking argument, okay, being and non-being or, or the goodness right. of being. I mean, Christianity, one of the things that reason Christianity picks up on that notion is because of the goodness of, of being. Mm -hmm. um, creation is gift, creation is good. So, so in, unless you're going to attribute also something not good, or you're going to call evil good, you have a problem there. Yes, right. And so, and so, um, this puts it very. The, the imagery here um, puts it in a way that we can actually see it. Right. Um, the argument, but I, I think uh, theologians really didn't have better ways of discussing it. Um, you know, as they tried to lift out the lift out of the biblical material and kind of analyze it, then, then talk of privation. Uh, you know, I think one one analogy was like, a, you know, the umbrella serves a good function, yet a hole in it. You know, it's still a good umbrella, except for the fact that there's a hole. That says there's a privation. And this is imagery, but I think Lewis is, is stronger. Yeah, and, and of course he's pulling together cosmology and metaphysics at this point yeah. in the story, and. Uh, you know, combining some things we don't normally combine, but this gives me back to my my earlier assertion that Glenn uh, was was reflecting on, and that is one of the reasons why uh, Christian Christians who aspire to be the next Lewis, yeah, 
uh, don't fail for the reasons that they think they fail. Yeah. You know, they, they often say, well, I'm just not as smart as he was. I didn't have a way, I don't have the same way with words that he had. And those things are often true. Yeah. <laughs> but at the heart of what uh, they're missing is what they can't even see, yeah. which is that Lewis just, you know, he wasn't a, just a bright guy who had a Bible and was yeah. telling stories that he just made out of thin air. He was, he was working from the Western tradition in a way that allowed him to, to sort of pull in uh, this, 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 you know, it's platonic imagery that informed his whole narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, that idea of... Uh, Privation as the essence of evil um, goes back to um, quite a while ago, Chris. You mentioned um, the um, the the concern that many Christians have that if you uh, start investing the world with meaning, start seeing a connection between the physical world and the spiritual world, that that will lead to idolatry. Yeah. But. In fact, idolatry is what happens when we see the physical, something physical, something earthly as an end in itself. Yes. Right. It um, actually, idolatry actually divests it of its its, of its significance as a sign pointing to something greater. That's right. Yes. Yeah. um, Yeah. And so, yeah, it's exactly the opposite of what that objection would propose. Right. And it shouldn't surprise us that there are these sort of counterintuitive things, or maybe things that. You know, because you know the, the Lord says all sorts of things that, on the surface, seem inconsistent or paradoxical. You know, if you try to save your life, you lose it. If you lose your life, you save it. You know, things, it's, it's stuff like that, all through the Bible. And anyone who's lived on this earth for very long knows that there are a lot of things about life in general that are strange and paradoxical. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. The thing that I found interesting about the, the passage from Out of the Silent Planet, I haven't read it in years, actually, more than years, it's decades. But um, the thing that struck me about it uh, this time is the, the interesting move that he makes is it's not just matter that is a whole in reality um, or in the ultimate reality. It's even energy. It's even light. Yes, right. So now that is one of these things that is going to, I suspect, um, a lot of a lot of moderns are just going to have a hard time swallowing. Mm-hmm. However, if you look at let's so pick a passage like let's say Isaiah six or if you like Revelation 4, the proclamation that the, the beings that are literally the closest things to God, their proclamation is that God is holy, holy, holy. And this is something R.C. Sproul does a lot with, this idea of the, um, the, the triple repetition there means it's, it's holiness raised to its highest level. So the beings that are closest, now the concept of holiness is difference. It's separation. It's, it's all of those kind of things. So the beings that are closest with God, the thing that they are closest to God, the thing that they recognize about him more than anything else is that he is unlike anything else that's out there. Hmm. That's what holiness means. So, what that says is that Lewis's comments here about matter and energy being wholes, 
he's pointing to the holiness of God, which is something that is a totally different category mm. from either matter or energy. And matter and energy are a complete diminution of it. Right. right. It's back on uh, on that sort of ironic aspect about it, because it is that that as much as the creation, especially the human creatures made in the image of God, as much similarity, that similarity is always marked by that ever greater dissimilarity. And that is the holding in place. I think that's the place in which Platonic language has helped articulate that biblical truth. And and it's it, that's where the issues of idolatry actually um, are raised legitimately. It's when that gets blurred, when when they're there. Um, when they become an end in themselves or are severed from from that greater dissimilarity, that holiness. Yeah, and that paradox even shows up in Isaiah 6. The next thing the seraphim say is, the earth is full of his glory. Glory, yeah, mm-hmm. one of so my favorite. Yeah. completely, yeah. radically holy, radically separated from everything else, and yet yeah. there's familiar to there's it still in, the, that in the most familiar sense. We still know what he is and by by seeing how much greater he is than all well, the earth. Yeah, well, and that's all. that also can be placed directly into a platonic frame. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the, what, is, what is seen is made from what is not seen. Right. That, that the, the invisible world becomes the origin of this world, and so this world reflects the glory of that which is unseen. And it reflects yeah. it right there with the similarity that is steeped in that which is even a greater dissimilarity. That's yes. that's the relation of transcendence to imminence in the Christian faith, is that similarity, yet similarity in such a way that it's marked by a greater dissimilarity. That's what analogy functions as. Yeah, and you know, as, as evangelicals, we're really good with the good and true. We never think of the beautiful. Right. Yes. And it, all beauty that we see in this world is a reflection, a pale shadow of yeah. the beauty of God. Right. And that's something we never really consider, we never really think about. Yeah. I want to throw a little a little wrinkle in here. This may be the last thing we'll be able to talk about before we run out of time. But I'll get your reaction to this. You know, we're told that that uh, you know God creates the heavens and the earth. And the, uh, the, the generally when we think about the heavens, um, we're thinking about something, at least in the modern way of thinking, as, as a kind of place you go when you die. You know, we think about heaven in that in that sense, uh, or we think about the starry expanse. You know, yeah. but that's uh, not, I think, a, a full understanding or biblical understanding. Of, you get to you know, something like you know the third heaven and like Second Corinthians, yeah, where Paul's yeah. talking about you know himself in the third person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he says things know, that he won't even really talk much about, you know, right. just that he, he was there. <laughs> but but what's Im- I think what's implied with that is that heaven itself is a creation. Yeah. And some thought some thinkers have proposed that that what you have is a kind of uh, intermediary structure between the earth and the the uh, this eternal realm. And it's and it's in this 
sphere or this range or this layer that we have rebellion. So when we get to like Ephesians, the principalities and powers and so forth, and we get the you know, prince of the power of the air, and we, and, we, and, and we see Christ descend and ascend and leading captives in his train, and we get, we get all that cosmological stuff going on. But it, it relates to this metaphysical question of how things work. So, you know, we've joked about this, that, uh, you know, uh, in the Bible, angels have jobs, but mm-hmm. now they don't seem to have jobs, at least unless you're a Pentecostal. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, you know, now it's true yeah. that like, when we read uh, Hebrews, yeah. that apparently that there is something going on here. Yes. You know, and that, uh, you know, the Lord is, and, I, and I've heard people speculate about this, and I don't want to get into a whole lot of speculation, but, sure. but you know, but the idea is, is that there's some kind of intermediary. There's, some, there's, there's the world, and then there's God, you know, the triune God, and then there's some other th- sort of th- thing going on in between that's had, you know, where angelic powers are working. They're messengers, for one thing. That's what angel means. But one way that some have thought about this is that what we, what we think of as forms or we think about as ends or whatever are written in the heavens, they're laid out in the heavens, and that there's some sense in which uh, the heavens are referring to this, uh, this process of, or this, the, these, these things that God has made which are uh, reflected in the world but also order the world. And one of the problems that we're facing is that, that there's been some disruption. There's been rebellion there. And uh, so you've got, like, when you think about, like, Platonism, when you think about the forms, we normally think about, you know, uh, them as uh, just kind of ideas in them. Like eternal ideas. Them. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of was like mechanisms. Yeah. But, you know, Christian thinkers uh, propose that there's some personal qualities, there's intelligences. And we see that, so for example, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when Eustace is introduced to the star, right? And uh, and he says, well, in my world, the star is just a flaming ball of gas. (laughs) The star says, well, even in your world, that's not all the stars. That's right. (laughs) But there's something else going on here. So, you know, like when you think about the cosmology, you know, of, of Ptolemaic cosmology of the spheres, or the music of the spheres. Yeah, you know, one of the ways that that was was understood was that the there are angelic beings through through their song are propelling the spheres that create the music that or constitute the music, I should say, that that gives the world its its uh, song. By the way, just that th- this is tangential, but. The idea that the Earth is the center of the universe, the way we interpret that, it's the world revolves around me. Right, right. The way they interpreted it is we're at the bottom of a hole. Right, right. You know, we are the furthest thing from God. Right. Um, And if you want to get a sense of what this is like, go outside on a starry night and look up at the stars and think... Not that they are far away, but think of them as being high. Yes. Not far, but high. Right, right. It's a and, and if you think of it that way, 
suddenly, it, I mean, it, 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 it's a tremendous, it, 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 it'll change your perspective. I mean, it's as simple as that. So, but, but that gets at this idea of some of these, those stars, those things that, are, that stand between us and God. There's got to be some form of intermediary there. Right, right. And of course, that goes a long way to explaining, you know, why it's not just about our personal obedience, that there's a cosmic conflict that is underway. I think, I think I mean, we mentioned Pentecost a little bit earlier, and sometimes we do with a little bit of a laugh, but the truth is I think they may have been the, the, the arena in the Protestant world that kept alive, even in its truncated form, something of the right kind of, of that, that reality. And I think that that you know again moving in the evangelicals and, and and modernist Christians moving away into a deeper naturalism and historicism have have sort of redefined all of that as just sort of the political stage or, yeah, or something right. on you know a completely imminent kind of thing. And I think we have to return to thinking about that. So it's all over Scripture. We we don't have a lot of clear cut. Um, we we tend to think oh that was an old worldview that the Scripture people. Are indebted to. We have to redefine it now. I'm sorry. That's that's yeah, that reminds think. me of an experience yeah. I had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Scoop the, the, the seminary consortium for urban pastoral education in Chicago. This was back in the '90s. And Walter Wink, does that name? Right? Oh yeah, yeah. Walter Wink. The, he was uh, kind of reinterpreting, sort of like, yeah, 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 reinterpreting all this uh, cosmology to do just that. This is what, what Paul is really talking about here: is City Hall and the evil people who are in, you know, Monsanto or whatever. And I remember being at that at that conference and just feeling this sense that this is evil what he's doing. Yeah. This is not a Christian way of thinking. When when we're talking about principalities of power, we're talking about spiritual realities, yeah. not just right. uh, you know uh, a, a way to, of talking about the people we don't like. That's that's right. And yeah, well, you know, if you read the discarded image, Lewis talks about the fact that one of the things that the medievals really believed in is that everything was full. Yes, there were inhabitants in every possible realm. Right. Right. And this leads them to some rather strange ideas here and there, but but this you you cannot take scripture at all seriously without recognizing the existence of these things. Yeah. Um, you know, I was talking to Oz Guinness at one point about my the book that I was at that point writing since come out about why the gospel is spreading in the global south but not here. And Oz, in his own inimitable way, looked at me like, like, well, isn't it just patently obvious? Was the look on his, what the look on his face said? What his words said were, well, they have a supernatural worldview, and for Oz, that explained fully why Christianity is growing in other places, but not here, because they recognize that the world is not just the physical world of matter and energy that we interact with on a daily basis. We're also interacting with a much bigger world. And, and to be biblical is to take all of that seriously, not just the stuff you can reinterpret in light of basically modern notions of causality. And it, it really is expressing a metaphysical, a cosmologic, it, it's, it's, it's representing the full picture. In the minute you start to redefine it, you're losing the heart of it. And I would also add that in my experience with college students right now, 
if you redefine it, you lose them. Yeah. yeah. Because a significant, a growing percentage of my students very definitely have a supernatural role, although yeah. it is not one that's in line with scripture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a bigger, fuller, more integrated, yeah. better one, but they, many of them are very, I mean, I've had a lot of students tell me about people who have, have uh, put curses on them that they had to go to a voodoo priestess to wow. remove. Wow. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've had multiple students tell me things like wow. that. Yeah. yeah. So the, 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 they, a lot of them, you know, the, 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 I suppose that one of the benefits of postmodernism is it's broken down the modernist conceits about, yeah. about the world. But where they're heading is not yeah. entirely healthy. Well, and, and I think, I mean, Charles Taylor's point in his famous work was that the Enlightenment provided a sort of buffer against that porous world of enchantment. But the, the thing is, is postmodernism has deliberately wanted to break it down because it saw that it was an illegitimate buffer. Um, I think Christianity Christianity has a le the legitimate buffer, but it's not going to be one that denies that there is a porous world out there. And that is, I mean, you can't be, you can't take scripture seriously without, uh, and, and, and get rid of, for example, the angels, the demonic, the principalities, evil, active evil, personal evil. These things are at the heart of it. And yet we sort of function with our enlightenment buffer day to day as though, yeah, we affirm it but we function like deists, that there is no... Well, e even if we don't function as yeah. deists, we're so used to emphasizing there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Yeah. It's me and Jesus. I can go yeah. directly to God. I can enter the, you know, yeah. draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. I can do all of those kinds of things. What do we need the angels for? <laughs> and then what ends up happening is, yeah. what do I need me for? Yeah. Well, you, because, or anyone you, else. Yeah, for that right, matter. Keep, or creation. That's right. You, you follow this all the way through, yeah. and you even lose yourself. You know, because what happens within certain Reformed circles, as you know, is that, well, if he's done everything, why do I need to do anything? You know? yeah. So anyway, I think, I think we're getting to a point where we need to wrap things up. But before we do, uh, we'll take one more you know, trip around the horn here, see if there's anything anybody wants to add. So, Tom, anything you want to... Um, no, just an excellent conversation and discussion. I, I think I'd like to return to a lot of these themes and with different, different things and uh, even more in relation to Lewis. I, I think this is really hitting the heart of what's necessary to return to for reform people in particular, Christians as a whole. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, the irony I see in this is that Lewis certainly has this bigger vision of the world, but I have found it articulated more clearly among contemporary writers by people who make no at least public claim of being evangelical at all. Elizabeth, any thoughts? Um, not much to add. It's been a great conversation, and thanks for letting me participate. Yeah, it's been good to have you. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, as uh, has already been noted, we'll probably return to this theme and bring up Lewis and I'm sure other authors as well. But thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast, broadcasting to you from the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.